Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Every time you think that they could not go lower, they do. Tonight on Laura Coates Live. You know, I would say the U.S. Congress is acting like schoolyard bullies, but that that might actually be an insult to schoolyard bullies. Yeah, in this corner, Kevin McCarthy, who apparently still nursing a bruised ego over losing the speakership, may or may not have delivered a very sharp elbow to the kidneys of one Tim Burchett, who, surprise, voted to remove McCarthy as speaker. Uh, got elbowed in the back. And it kind of caught me off guard because it was a clean shot to the kidneys. And I turned back, and there was there was Kevin, and um, and I, I for a minute I was kind of what the heck just happened. And then I, um, you know, I, I chased after him, of course. If I hit somebody, they would know I hit him. If I kidney punch him, he'd be on the ground. And is he 12? Come on, I'm I'm just not going to get in. I'm not going to swing at the low pitches. He knows what he did, and he's, you know, he's suffers the consequences. You hear him say, if I hit someone, you'd know I hit him? An elbow to the kidneys. Ladies and gentlemen, your elected representatives at work this evening. And in this corner, you've got Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, who today challenged a witness to a fist fight during a Senate hearing. I repeat, a fist fight. And it may not have been an idle threat. The senator is a former mixed martial arts fighter, after all, which isn't ordinarily a prerequisite for election to the Senate. But with the way things are now, I mean... Who knows? If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. You don't do that in Oklahoma. You don't run your mouth unless you're going to answer the call. I mean, I don't even know the last time I've gotten a street fight. I used to get paid to fight. This is actually real life, by the way. And did you happen to hear about the oversight chairman, James Comer, who today called Congressman Jared Moskowitz a smurf that was also, by the way, on your dime during a hearing. That is bullshit. You look like a smurf here just going around and all this stuff. You're now, doing stuff with your brother. The American people have the same questions. Why should they believe you? You've already been proven a liar. Today. Who's proven me a liar? You? Yes. I personally would have broken out into the la, 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 la moment because I'm just saying I was a child of the 80s and remember the Smurfs quite well. But Smurfs, fistfights, kidney punches. Well, Mitch McConnell, remember him? He sounds like he's a little bit sick and tired of all of it. Another member of Smurfs Very in a hearing. difficult to control the behavior of everybody who's in the building. Because apparently it's childcare. Apparently so, but some members of Congress seem to have forgotten how to do the jobs that we elected them to do. Instead, I guess we just have to expect more and more of the foolishness. I mean, if this were fiction, it would remind you maybe of something like this. Well, I actually have a baby. I need hey, to kiss. Hey, hey, that's my baby to kiss. 
Oh, no, 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 That's ridiculous. And yet, you heard what I said leading up to it, right? We've got a lot to talk about tonight with uh, men who know the House from the inside, former Congressman Fred Upton and Joe Walsh. All right, no one's punching babies, fellas. However, this is really absurd to think you about. Know, they just used to use my initials. And now it's like, <laughs> it's it's yeah, Fred, Fred Upton, Upton. Yeah, everyone. Yeah. FYI, you figure it out. It's a go ahead, family show. Yeah, it's family show, but it's cable, so it's okay. You know, it's all right. It's, it's you know, don't have the FCC stuff, but I mean, it it's a mess. And you know, I we know both these guys, both Joe and I know these guys. And one guy you don't want to be in a fight with yeah. it's Mark Wayne Mullen. I mean, we've seen him in the gym, but he's he is uh, you know he's a kickboxer. I mean, that's. Not the guy you want to pick a fight with. He told me once that his name is not Mark, it's not Wayne, it's Mark Wayne. That's right. Remember, and I was like, yep, oh, that's you right. know what? But he took I'm his, Fred, but he's Mark Wayne. I mean, he took his, at one point, almost his wedding ring off, which, you yeah, know, he, well, they did, he did to, take it to off. do something about it. This is, and you heard Senator Bernie Sanders saying, you're a senator. <laughs> yeah, Laura, none of it is issues-based. McCarthy and, and Burkett getting in, in a fight, and, and Comer calling uh, um, the congressman a smurf. None of it is based on any issues. It's all performative. It's all to get. A, it's all to have a show like this talk about them. It's it's a party, Laura. That to my mind, our my former party, yeah, Fred's we're both party, Republicans. Yeah, that that kind of knows they're losing the house. They're going to lose the house. They don't stand for anything, and we're going to have a year of this just lashing out at each other. That's really counterintuitive, though. But think about it. On the one hand, if you want to have the moral high ground and be seen as the adult in the room and be able to go against the Democrats and say they don't know how to govern, they don't know what they're doing. The, it would occur to me the last thing you would want is for people to know this is happening. I, I, I assume it always happened, but it's happening in broad daylight. Is it, when you look at this right now, are you seeing this happening in your tenure as well, even behind closed doors? No, it wasn't like this. It wasn't like this. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that the Kevin thing was all that strong. I mean, it was like, you know, a little, little jab. But it, wasn't, it wasn't a cross-check in the... The Blackhawks yes. or the yeah. Capitals. Here. Well, he said, if I had hit someone, you'd know. And by he, the way, he would have. He, he would have known. If he had hit him, he would have he known it. Well, Kevin's a lot bigger than both of us yes. together. I want to play for a second, though, because he, McCarthy obviously denies this yeah. ever happened. He says it did not happen. Tonight, Burchett says the incident is a um, sad end to McCarthy's career. Listen to this. I'm just, it's just disappointing that that's the way he's going to end his career, spiraling out of control. And it's, Can, it's disappointing because we should be dealing with the budget and all these other things that I said that are that are really in a, in a crisis stage right now. And and people like himself, it's all about them and and their their childish activities. So what impact on the Congress, though? I mean, obviously, the American people are watching this. And on the one hand, if it were Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis, you'd probably be laughing. But it's actually happening right now. We are. We are. We are laughing. But should we be laughing? No, no. because it's utter dysfunction. 
But again, Laura, Republicans signaled to us before they even took control of the House that it was going to be this way. They, they were going to investigate everything. They wanted to impeach Joe Biden, impeach every Democrat. It, 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 so they signaled to us that these two years were going to be chaotic. It's not a surprise that they're, they're, they're now fighting with each yeah, other. Yeah. And they can't get anything done. But, I mean, instead of taking, like, Halloween, I mean, they had Halloween off. I know yeah. they're complaining we've been in... 10 weeks working, like, I don't know, their weeks are like three or four days. I mean, welcome to the rest of the world yeah. who works all the time. Yeah. And meanwhile, they knew about this November 17th deadline for mm -hmm. what, six, seven weeks now? Mm -hmm. And so now they're going to punt it into next year. They're probably not going to do a lot between now and next year, maybe a day or two in terms of legislative votes. They got a couple things they have to do, like the National Defense Authorization Bill. But in essence, we aren't going to see what that next version is going to look like until they come back in January. There was almost it's going to be the same thing as it, as it was this week. There was almost a fist fight on the floor when McCarthy first went through the process of becoming yeah. speaker. I mean, so this is they've been on this road. Is part of this because there is not the well-known and strongest of leaders heading the Republican Party right now in the House. There's no, I mean, there's no... Well, the margin of control is so slim. And you have this rule that Kevin agreed to, McCarthy, yeah. Yeah. to vacate the chair with one vote. You know, I was a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. We actually changed the rule. We forced Nancy Pelosi to accept a change, which Kevin then reversed when he became Speaker. So literally tomorrow, Burchett or somebody else, yeah. they could... You know, the argument against Kevin was, oh, he worked with the Democrats to pass the CR, passed mm -hmm. with one more vote than they did in September. Whose vote was it? Mike Johnson. He was a no vote in September. And he was a yes vote this afternoon. So if it, is it going to be the same standard? Are they now going to have a, a one person say we're going to have a, a vote to vacate the chair at some point? You know, whether it be this week or January. And Laura, the elephant in the room, whose party is this? This is Trump's party. They've learned from him. They imitate him. They emulate him. This is what he does. Well, I guess they would say bring it then at that, that moment. Fred Upton, <laughs> yeah. I'll use your full name, not your initials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was his phrase, everyone. And also yeah. Joe Wallace, thank you so much. So do we just have to, I guess, resign ourselves this kind of behavior from our members of Congress and other elected officials? I'll talk about it next with Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University, Joanne Freeman. She's the author of The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War. How's that for a cliffhanger, America? We'll be right back. Actually, can I just talk to her now? Good. Okay, this, <laughs> I want to talk to you right now. I, want, I don't want to go to break. I want to talk right now because honestly, when I look at all that's happening right now, we're seeing everything that's happening in the world. Your name, your book gives me a little bit of pause because... One thing is, you didn't just write it after this week. It wasn't like it's here right now when you see all that's going on in Congress. It's instead, any time that it's relevant again tells me this has happened before, which is very scary to think about. I mean, you heard Tim Burchett, McCarthy's incident, juvenile at best, maybe more nefarious at worst. What do you think when you saw this? Well, certainly, um, speaking as someone who did write a book about physical violence in the U.S. Congress in the 18. 30s, 1840s, and 1850s, there was a lot of physical violence at that time. So maybe part of what I was thinking today was all of this happened in one day. <laughs> That's, that in and of itself is, is not typical. 
But I suppose really what it made me think of is, in a sense, something that I concluded from the work that I did on my book, which is what we're seeing is reflective of the state of affairs in Congress today in the Republican Party and the state of the nation. And by that, I mean, if you think about what political parties typically can do, one of the things that they can do in one way or another is enforce discipline of some kind, party discipline, mm -hmm. keeping members in line, uh, keeping them from perhaps punching each other or maybe shoving them in a hallway or throwing out names in a hearing. Another thing that political parties typically can do is they have an agenda or a, a mission or a policy that draws them together and unites them and enables them to work together. And again, tamps down some of the kind of behavior that we saw today. So part of what went through my mind as a historian is, well, we're looking at the impact of a party that is not a functional party. And without all of the things that a party does, all of the control that it can enforce, we're seeing all of this sort of flying off at all sides as to uncontrolled behavior in Congress. I mean, if, if only Congress had something to do with their time, they might be distracted enough to not fight one another. I mean, it's, it's absurd to think about that being maybe a solution. And you're right when you think about you ought to have more things than this going on and policy disputes, certainly backstabbing figuratively all part of Washington, D.C. This another ball game, But this kind of violence is not new. I mean, you've written a book about it. In fact, there was an incident, a story you, you talk about that um, a more recent one involving John Boehner that a lot of people never heard about some hostility involving the then freshman House member John Boehner with another lawmaker. Um, listen, listen to this. I was on the floor of the House, freshman member railing against earmarks. Next thing you know, I'm finished with my speech. I'm walking toward the back of the chamber. I'm up against the wall. And I've got this 10-inch blade. I mean a 10-inch sharp blade right here. And this guy's screaming at me. And I looked at him and I went, screw you. I mean, first of all, I'm at the table with four members of Congress, and they're both like, we remember that. We know what happened that day. This yeah. is happening in some place. And they became friends later, but this wasn't widely known until a couple of, I think, what, years ago. But What's your reaction? Well, it's a reminder, too. This is not necessarily an encouraging or comforting reminder that there are lots of things going on in the Capitol that we don't know about. So even I, as someone who spent 15 or 17 years writing this book and looking for congressional violence, it was at the last minute that that particular incident crossed my radar screen. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. If this is in our immediate past, and I've been looking for this sort of material and didn't see it, imagine what else is sort of lurking behind the scenes. So I suppose it's part of what we can frame what we're looking at today is a, a reminder that what we're looking at is public and thus noticeable, but there's probably always some degree of something lurking behind the scenes. I think that what you just mentioned a moment ago is an important part of what we're seeing here, which is precisely because there's so much at stake, right, because of the possibility of a shutdown because of Gaza, because of Ukraine, because of having just gotten over the contest to appoint a speaker, because of any number of things that are really right now, even just the idea of the presidential election coming, all of those things are so fraught and so extreme that the fact that the Republicans can't pull themselves together, don't have a unified policy, don't have party discipline, makes that all the worse. Mm, if you could, if these walls could talk and before 
Democrats get out their popcorn, there are flies on those walls as well. Joanne Freeman, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We've got some breaking news tonight. Israel says that its forces are carrying out a precise and targeted operation at the largest hospital in the Gaza Strip with hundreds of patients and staff who are still inside. We'll have the latest next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Our breaking news, Israel says its troops are right now carrying out a precise and targeted operation at the largest hospital in the Gaza Strip. A hospital Israel says includes a Hamas command center, an allegation denied by hospital officials and Hamas. Hundreds of staff and patients are reportedly inside that hospital, along with several thousand people who sought shelter from Israel's military offensive. Trying now to break down what's happening, retired General Steve Anderson. So first of all, what is meant by this, and I'm quoting them, targeted and precise operation? Well, Laura, what we're talking about here is precise operations in a compound. Uh, this is not just a hospital building, but it's a compound. You've got 1,500 fa- uh, faculty members, staff members, and patients, and there's probably thousands of people living in the areas, in these sheltered areas, in this area right here. So what, what you've got to do is you've got to pinpoint exactly what, uh, you've got to pinpoint these spots and conduct precision operations. That doesn't mean indiscriminate fighting mm. or indiscriminate firing of missiles. It means going in with boots on the ground to take out the bad guys. You physically have to go in and occupy these buildings, in, in this case, tunnels, because there's many tunnels, as we know, underneath here. So when you talk about having to know that precision, the, the ground operation leading up till right now would have prepared for this very moment with special forces? That's exactly right. You want special forces. You want infantry troops. You want folks that are trained in how to do this. Now, they are using robots. They are using technology to the best of their ability. But there's nothing that's going to replace a soldier that's down in the tunnel 
conducting an offensive operation to take out the bad guys. That's the only way to do this. There's just no technology that's probably going to be, allow you to overcome that basic fact. You have to have boots on the ground in the target area. They're calling this a command center. They're, of course, denying that. But, I mean, is there an indication that this is a high-value target area? Absolutely. If you look at the tunnel map here, Laura, you can see that the Al-Shifa hospital is essentially in this area right here. Well, what do you see? You, knew, you notice a lot of tunnels. There's a lot of tunnels all over that northern part of Gaza. Now, what the Israelis have done a very good job is cut the country in half. They have essentially come across here. They're moving up from the south. They're coming down from the north. And they're also surrounding this area. And they've got this noose that they're applying. But they've done a very effective job of conducting a campaign that allows them to essentially control this entire area. And they're conducting precision attacks inside that area, which I think is a very prudent move on their point. They cannot go willy-nilly into this Gaza right. city area. They need to do it in a controlled, methodical way. And the best way to do that is to surround the area and conduct precision attacks with boots on the ground and targeted areas like the Al-Shifa hospital. But what we know about these tunnels so far is that they could likely be housing hostages. How is that complicated at all? It complicates it greatly. You're spot on target. I mean, that is the big problem. I mean, otherwise, you know, you could do things like flood the tunnels. Mm -hmm. You could you cut off the air supply. But when you have hostages down there, that greatly complicates the whole thing. All the more reason to have soldiers that are trained and how to take out the bad guys. That's the only way you're going to have a chance of saving the hostages by using people that are trained in this you're not going to be able to use probably technology and you're not going to be able to do some kind of a mass weapon because if you take out the bad guys, you're going to attack the hostages. So they've got to do it mm. the only way possible. Precision attacks with soldiers that are trained on how to do this in a tunnel environment. So sinister to think about the reason to put those hostages in those tunnels in an area, like you say, where a hospital is needed. Unbelievable. Thank you so much, General Steve Anderson, everyone. Thank you. Could Donald Trump be in a Georgia courtroom on Election Day? How about Inauguration Day? Well, the DA down there, Fannie Willis, speaks out on the Georgia election subversion case and just how long it could last. We'll talk about it next. Well, new tonight, Fannie Willis, the Fulton County DA prosecuting former President Donald Trump and many others in Georgia, says that the election subversion trial could play out well past next year's presidential race. I believe the trial will take many months and I don't expect that we will conclude until the winter or the very early part of 2025. Well, mark your calendar as the early part of 2025 means by the time there's a verdict, whoever it is will be president, will have been elected by that. And that includes maybe the former president, Donald Trump. Now, if it goes past, say, Inauguration Day and he wins the election, a lot of caveats here, he would already be in the White House. Sounds a lot different than what Willis told reporters back in August. Remember this? We do want to move this case along, and so we will be asking for a proposed order that occurs a trial date within the next six months. Six months. And at the time, everyone kind of scoffed at that notion because, of course, there are 18 co-defendants. Four of them have already taken a plea deal, meaning do the simple math, everyone, and carry the one. There's 14 left. Now, if the racketeering case involving rapper Young Thug that D.A. is also overseeing, if that's a kind of preview of what's to come, then we have a long way to go. That rapper, along with 27 others, was indicted back in May of 2022. 
get this, the jury selection lasted nine months. And the case will go to trial on November 27th. It's almost 18 months after the indictment. Get some more perspective right now on all this from David Aaron, a former federal prosecutor. David, first of all, I am a little surprised that she's talking because she obviously knows that every single word she says is going to be completely leaned in on and taken apart. Are you surprised she spoke about this? I, I'm surprised uh, that, that she's making public statements about it. I think when you look at what she's saying and you look at what's being represented to the court, I'm, I'm guessing that it's going to be very similar. So she's probably not going beyond uh, what's on the record in court, but it is unusual for a, a lead prosecutor or chief prosecutor to be making public statements like this. And other hand, what she's saying is not, not necessarily about the, the substance of the matter, but just about the realistic trial date and the process. And it always seemed a little unrealistic to people that it could be done in six months. Was it that way for you too? Yeah, I mean, prosecutors will come out and um, you know they have a timeline in mind for their cases, but they're not the only ones in charge of that. And when you charge a case with complicated legal theories, a lot of different defendants, all of whom have the right to make motions, the schedule is going to going to shift, and we've seen that in some of the other ongoing cases as well. Uh, it's it's not a surprise that a case like this could take this long if all of those defendants stay in the mix. It's a big if because you already know four have already said no. I mean, you and I have tried cases. I mean, you think about what your jury pool looks like, but also. What's going to be the most persuasive argument to make to your jury? The idea of a looming election is going to be very, very persuasive and helpful to the prosecution. The idea of one in the rearview mirror, maybe not so much. Does this now hurt their case? You know, of course, the judge is going to be instructing the jury not to think about any of that. Okay, and uh, they're going to ignore and, that. They're exactly, all going to be like, okay, exactly. thank you, Your Honor. And I mean, it's so hard to predict these these unprecedented influences, how they are going to, uh, how they're going to have an impact on the jury or really what the consequence of uh, former president becoming the president-elect, what, what consequence that could have on the judge's management of the trial. I also look at this in terms of what has now leaked. I mean, we've heard, we saw the, saw the proffer for um, Sidney Powell, the Jenna Ellis as well, two mm -hmm. attorneys who have now pleaded guilty in this case. Um, Fannie Willis also filed an emergency motion to try to seal certain evidence, to have a protective order in this case. The fact that there were leaks at all, though, I mean, how does that bear in terms of the actual trial? Well, first off, it was it was a surprise to me, probably a surprise to you as well, that there was no protective order in place. Right. Already. I thought that was odd, too. Engaging in discovery without a protective order. Um, but, you know, local practice is different in different places. Um, so that was a surprise. Um, I don't know how much of an impact this will have. I mean, there could be an argument that there's some tainting of the jury pool or some witness intimidation. Um, but really looking at, at the little clips that I was able to see, I don't know how much of that was coming in as evidence um, or really what the, what the legal consequence of it being leaked is. Um, if someone did violate an order, a standing order of the court um, or other, some other directive, um, depending on where the leak was from, you know, there could be a consequence for that person. Well, there's one order in Fulton County. There's one, of course, in D.C. involving Jack Smith, a gag order that they're trying to have an appeals court upheld, mm -hmm. uphold, excuse me. What do you make of the chance of that happening? Uh, of the order in D.C. being right. upheld? You know, it, it looks to me like that is, uh, that is a narrow order that is designed to let this judge uh, you know, the judge in D.C. conduct that case the way that a case should be conducted. Um, in any case, the defendant shouldn't be making comments targeting participants in the case, prosecutors, court personnel, witnesses, jurors. Um, 
So I, I think I think that really stands a good chance of being upheld, maybe modified a little bit. You know, appellate courts do that sometimes. But uh, that seems like a very well-tailored order to just maintain an orderly proceeding, which is really the judge's responsibility to do. I love that you're operating in the normal world still. Thank you so much. Thank glad- you. <laughs> glad to see you, David Aaron, everyone. Listen, the man accused of attacking Nancy Pelosi's husband, he took the stand, testifying in his own defense. He claims that he became caught up in conspiracy theories and drew up a, a list that included even Tom Hanks. The dramatic day in court is next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Chilling testimony about an even more chilling plot. The man accused of attacking Nancy Pelosi's husband with a hammer, taking the stand today in his own defense. David DePap claiming that he hit Paul Pelosi because his larger plan was at risk. And that plan included claims where he would respond to exposed conspiracy theories online, he said, and involved targeting people on a hit list. A list including Nancy Pelosi herself, Congressman Adam Schiff, The actor, Tom Hanks, former Attorney General Bill Barr, California Governor Gavin Newsom, and a Michigan professor. DePap says that all this started after his exploration of Gamergate, a misogynistic attack platform against women critical of the gaming community. Joining you now is CNN Senior National Security Analyst, Juliette Kayyem. Juliette, I mean... (laughs) Break this all down for us a little bit here. There's a lot of different conspiracy theories at play and what's happening now. How do you get from conspiracy theories to what this thing called Gamergate to then attacking Paul Pelosi? Yeah, so we'll start with Gamergate. About 2014, this sort of, you know, online um, effort to go after attack, undermine, ridicule, all sorts of things. Women who were either criticizing the gaming industry or were actually executives in the gaming industry. So I want the, you need to think about sort of all of these weird things like Gamergate as sort of gateway ideology. So none of them sort of stop where they are. They all become gateways to something else. And in, in, in this example, you know, Gamergate becomes a gateway to the conspiracy theories and then to the sort of right wing um, effort and right wing conspiracies that he becomes a, a part of and then launching to Nancy Pelosi. So they, they, they seem different and all bizarre, but they really serve as gateways uh, to each other. And there are people who will bridge those gateways. Steve Bannon has actually said Gamergate proved fertile ground for a lot of the efforts that he would then push uh, to support Trump. So in terms of the people who might be more susceptible to, because a lot of people are exposed to conspiracy theories, they're aware of conspiracy theories. He himself described himself as, as right of center. He listens to podcasts. A lot of people do. But then if somebody is, how is somebody more susceptible to being able to do what he has done? Yeah, look, there's a lot of different elements for someone who would go from, okay, I'm just reading a lot of weird things or even going down the rabbit hole, and then I'm going to actually execute a plan against the the second in line to the to the presidency. So what we do know in a lot of these instances is that they're, they're looking um, to not 
double negative, but they're looking to not be lone wolves. In other words, they want that union, that that co a cooperation, that community that the online groups give them. They sort of egg each other on. They're they're pushing each other towards more hate, more misogyny, more racism, more anti-Semitism. And then that pushes at least one of them forward. Now, who's that one person? Well, what we know from a lot of these cases that, well, they're white men. Uh, they are uh, taken in by one theory, say Gamergate, and then it becomes a gateway towards sort of right-wing extremism in, in, in this case, or at least some form of political extremism. Uh, they, um, they are uncomfortable in their own skin, so to speak. They are looking for people to give them validation. Uh, and they they, um, and so their their hatred then gets taken by the, this online community, and then they go they go forward. So all of these, I mean, the, the element of these men being so you know misogynistic and 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 the hate filled. I mean, a lot of that is you know obviously their own insecurity and uncomfortableness in their own skin. So like when you look at, for example, a lot of these uh, guys who are on, you know, being homophobic, a lot of them end up getting arrested or or being exposed for being gay. If you look at the people who are critical of of uh, or, or worried about uh, children being taken by Democrats, a lot of them have eventually been, been uh, uh, prosecuted for uh, child pornography, if not child molestation. So there's like a, a, a horrible nexus between the thing that they hate and the very thing that they are. I mean, this is somebody who went through a lot of rabbit holes. I mean, he was somebody who believed that 9-11 was an inside job. He thinks that everything yeah. was a lie from the press. He's gone down a lot of rabbit holes. And so if you describe all that you've talked about, what is law enforcement to do? I mean, are they only able to be reactive yeah. then? Because these are the perhaps the needles in the haystack trying to figure out which yeah. person, a member of these communities, are going to be the ones to have to, that might perpetrate a crime. What is law enforcement to do? Yeah, a lot of it is going to be defense, especially against VIPs like Paul and Nancy Pelosi. I was surprised how sort of isolated Paul Pelosi was. I mean, obviously, if Nancy Pelosi had been there, uh, uh, there would have been more security. Uh, and the idea that this isn't sort of a, a political crime is ridiculous. Paul, Pelosi, he thought uh, that that Nancy Pelosi was in the house. He clearly was going uh, was going after there. But look, we know from de-radicalization and we know from uh, a lot of studies that have been done at this stage that the, commu the best community that can grab people out of this rabbit hole is is their family and friends is is the community that sees this happening and then even in in his case uh th that was true that his community the people around him saw him getting more and more radicalized more and more into these theories uh, but it's really we are very dependent on people coming forward um, or trying to get people out of these these rabbit holes that they they begin in and remember that you know gamergate is just one thing it is it is that it is that it's like a gateway drug, right? You find them there, and then all of a sudden you're going to lure them to sort of radical extremism, radical political extremism, which, as we head towards 2024, uh, is a disconcerting thought. Juliet Kayam, thank you so much. It is very scary to think about, not just disconcerting. I'll tell you, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Tens of thousands rally on the National Mall in support of Israel. One of the organizers for the March for Israel is going to join me next. A huge show of support in the capital, tens of thousands in a march for Israel, filling the national, national Mall. The goal was to offer support to Israel and call for the release of more than 200 hostages 
held in Gaza. Top U.S. political leaders were there to lend support. We stand with Israel. The survival of the state of Israel and her people unites us together, and it unites all Americans. And a plea from the mother of a hostage. We all have third-degree burns on our souls. Our hearts are bruised and seeping with misery. But the real soul's suffering are those of the hostages. Why is the world accepting that 240 human beings from almost 30 countries have been stolen and buried alive? In the lead up to the rally, the Department of Homeland Security designated the demonstration as a level one security threat, allowing for interagency support. And seemingly the event went on without a hitch. Joining me now, Julie Platt, the chair of Jewish Federations of North America, one of the two organizations that planned the rally. Julie, you just heard one of the mothers of a hostage. It seemed to really hit close to home. And for all of us, just thinking about what's at stake here, what was your reaction to what she said? I can barely stand it. I can barely stand to listen to her. And there were many families of hostages with us today at the rally. It's hard to imagine how they sleep how they go through their days. There are little children who are hostages. I have grandchildren. I can't imagine what that feels like. We actually just heard that perhaps there's one more hostage because I think one of the hostages may have given birth. So to imagine that scenario as a hostage, I just can barely stand it. I'm, that gives me absolute pause to even hear that, the idea of somebody, anyone being taken in that way. And then to see a need for a rally and a march against anti-Semitism in the year 2023, then to have so many people turn out for marching. What did that mean to you? We believe that it was the largest gathering of American Jews in history. Um, our guess is about 290,000 Jews and allies of the Jewish community came together today. We needed to be in community. We needed to know we have each other, that we would be listened to in this fight against anti-Semitism and in our great desire to help to free the hostages. It felt great to be together. It felt empowering. It felt like coming out of isolation in pain and fear to stand strong and to stand as a community and to voice our great desire for help. There's a broad spectrum of views, even within the audience, in terms of what comes next. I want to listen, listen to this moment. There was a call from, um, in the rally from Van Jones. Listen to what he had to say. I'm a peace guy. I pray for peace. No more rockets from Gaza and no more bombs falling down on the people of Gaza. God protect the children. God protect the children. Let's end all the horror and all the heartbreak in the Holy Land. Let's end all of it. Let's end all of it. Now, there was initial applause there, you hear, but then 60 seconds later, listen to this, or 30 seconds later, actually. Let's take a stand here against anti-Jewish bigotry. Let's take a stand against Muslim. Let's, ta let's take a stand here against hatred. You're hearing a chant of no ceasefire, no ceasefire. Why do you think that was the chant following that statement? 
I believe that there is a fear of American Jews and in solidarity with Israel that until Hamas has been rooted out, there will be no freedom for Palestinians or Israelis. Hamas has got to be removed from power and removed from the stranglehold they have in the Palestinian territories and in Israel. So the, the worry about a ceasefire is it can't happen now. We can't have a ceasefire. What will happen with a ceasefire? They'll simply rearm. Something dreadful like what happened on October 7th might be enabled by a moment to regroup, rearm, re-strategize. It can't happen now until Hamas has been removed as a threat both to the Palestinians and to Israelis. How do you reconcile the humanitarian crisis happening among the civilians? I, I do truly believe that it is the desire of the Israeli people and of all people of goodwill to deliver humanitarian aid. I know you have seen and read that it is very possible that those efforts are being blocked by Hamas itself. It is all of our desires to save lives of innocent civilians. We believe it is a Jewish value to hold on to life, that every, every person is made in the image of God. But terrorism cannot rule. It can't rule us. It can't rule Palestinians. Julie, thank you so much. There's so much to say and to unpack, and we should not be here for any of these reasons. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Thank you all for watching. Our coverage continues. That's true. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.